The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I mean, we look on these guys with enormous sort of pity now. In a sense, you know, we think of that, that it was a war where we send a generation of young men into the industrial mincing machine and destroyed their psyche and destroyed them for, for life. And to some degree, there's nothing untruthful about that, you know. That certainly is an overview of what happened. But they themselves didn't feel that. They didn't think that was what's happening to them. So, you know, we listened to over 600 hours of veterans, from, you know, hundreds of different veterans, and they, there was no feeling sorry for themselves. That was Peter Jackson talking to us about his new film on the First World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Opening in British cinemas tomorrow, the 16th of October, is They Shall Not Grow Old, a documentary film which takes original black and white footage from the First World War and transforms it into colour. The director is Peter Jackson, the man behind The Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies, and he spoke to our website assistant Rachel Dinning a few days ago about this extraordinary film, which will also be airing on BBC One in a few weeks' time. Um, I suppose a good place to start would be to ask why you wanted to produce a, a film about the First World War. Well, I mean, I've been interested in the First World War my entire life, but ironically, I, I, I was asked to do it. I, I didn't actually propose it. I, I, um, the Imperial War Museum invited me for a meeting about four years ago, and they asked me if I would be interested in doing a documentary for the, for the centenary, and the only brief that they gave me, which was a pretty wide brief, as they said, um, you can be anything you want it to be, but we just want to use our film archive in a, in a way that's sort of original and different. And I said, yeah, okay. And, they, and I said, well, what exactly? And I said, we, we don't know, but just something that's a bit, you know, that freshens up the archive. Um, and all I had in my head was every World War I docker I've ever seen in my life with all the same old film going through it. And I just, you know, I said, okay, well, you're just going to have to give me a bit of time to have a think about it, because right now I haven't got a clue what I could do. Um, so I went back to New Zealand and I started to think about it. And I, the first thing I thought of um, was, you know, with all the computer technology that we have, and, and in New Zealand I've got a visual effects company with, you know, you know, thousands of computers and people who do all the visual effects for these movies. And 
And I thought, I wonder, using all the computer firepower that we now have, how well we could restore this film. Because I don't think anyone's ever really tried. People have restored footage and, and stuff for TV shows and everything, but to really kind of throw a huge amount of firepower at it. So I asked the museum to, um, to send me over about three or four minutes for a test. Um, and I'll see, well, let's have a go at looking at what we can do with restoring it. And then so, so we took this three or four minutes and we spent a few months really just, just um, figuring out how to restore it because restoration of old film is not one thing. It's you've got to, there's about a dozen different things you've got to do. To, and each, each of the problems has to have a different solution. So you've got like the scratches you've got to get rid of. You've got the grain, so grainy film, and especially most of it's very grainy because it's been, it's been duped several times. You've got um, the fact that the film has shrunk over the years, so the sprocket holes are, uh, are, are erratic and, and thinner, so when it's sort of put through a machine, it you know, jumps all over the place, it's not stable. So you've got to stabilise it. You've then got to um, you know, sharpen things and do get rid of the, you know, that some of it's very black, some of it's very, very white, you know, overexposed and underexposed. Got to adjust that, and then, you know, finally you've got to adjust the speed, because obviously everybody's image of the First World War is... Charlie Chaplin, you know, sped up. So we wanted it all to be back at normal lifelike speed. And it was that was the most notable thing because once we do all the other stuff and all the sharpening and once you do, when you then do the speed, these people become human beings again. When, when you've done all the other stuff and now you, they suddenly move in a natural way, the same as we all move, the nuances come, come alive, their, their facial expressions come alive and God, they, they, they just, I, I was absolutely stunned, to be honest, it was, because I hadn't, had never done this before, I'd never tried it before, and, and the results were so much better than what I thought And of course, happen. you added colour to the film, of this original well, film. Well, it, it's sort of one thing led to the other. What, what was interesting is when the film was, the first restorations was happening, I was looking at it, you know, I realised that, the, that what, what, what is the most profound thing that I'm seeing here is that we're turning these guys into human beings again. You know, they're going from being silent movie Jerky, Charlie Chaplin figures, they're actually becoming human beings. So I just suddenly thought, well, this has got to be a war about, it's a story about them. It's not actually a First World War film, it's a story about these, 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 these are human beings that were in the war. And so at that point, I then asked the um, BBC and the Perry War Museum to dig out um, all their audio interviews that they got from veterans. But I asked them to be only stuff that they'd done in the 1960s and 70s. I didn't really want audio, I didn't want the film to be have audio from like ancient, you know, 98-year-old men um, who can't remember much, but, you know, give it their best shot. You know, I wanted it, I wanted youngest, youngest veterans I could possibly get. Um, and fortunately, the BBC had done their Great War series in, in 1963 and filmed about 200 veterans, of which you know, only a fraction ended up in the series. So they were very kindly dug into their archives and kept looking and they kept, <laughs> and kept, and they kept unearthing more and more tapes from that, from that session. Um, and sing them down, and, and, and we ended up, you know, with lots of um, interviews that had, had, had never been broadcast, never been heard. And the Imperial War Museum also found a lot of interviews that they'd um, conducted in the 60s and 70s. So we got these, you know, re relatively young, young voices. I mean, the guys are only like ten, 10 years older than I am now, really. So they're definitely not old men. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and you know, and so we had. I just made that the, the sort of my, and, and I thought, well, okay, these are the. It's about them. Let them tell their story. And then the colour came about, the next thing was the colour, because if, these, if this is the story of, of these guys and, and how they experienced the war, 
you know, and, and they, they, it's, not, not, it's not telling us about I mean, the strategy and tactics of the First World War. It's not, because they didn't know about that. They only, as one of the guys in the film says, you know, you know, their war experience was just what they could see in front, in front of their eyes. They didn't have a clue what was going on down, down the road. They were not privy to any of that stuff. Their, their war experience was strictly what they could see and right in front, in front of them. So I thought, well, what they could see was color. They, they saw a war in color. They certainly didn't see it in black and white. If they were colorblind, they wouldn't have been, they wouldn't have been allowed to join the army. So um, they were definitely looking at it in color and they were looking at it in 3D. So I just thought, well, this has got to be color and it's got to be 3D because we're trying to basically you know, tell their story, so. I mean, I had the pleasure of watching the film this morning and it was absolutely mesmerising. And I particularly liked that it starts off in black and white mm. and then it sort of opens up and it's almost as if your eyes are opening and you're mm. suddenly seeing through the eyes of the soldier, yep. um, which is mm. what you were going for. Yes. Um, you mentioned, so we're 100 years on from the First World mm. War. We can analyse the bigger picture of it. We know the scale of the casualties, etc. But your film looks at the war from the inside out, from the perspectives of yeah, the Yeah, it's soldiers. incredibly int introspective view. It's not, it's not gonna, you're not going to learn anything yeah. about the First World War on a greater view from this film, but you'll learn, probably, you'll be surprised at how the soldiers felt about the war. That, that's the thing that you will be surprised about. So what do we learn um, about life on the front line from, from the soldiers' perspective? What do we learn from them? Well, I mean, you know, you learn a lot of things that you may or may not know. Um, you know, I, you know what, what it ultimately became about is what they ate, where they slept, what they drank. Um, you know, what, how they felt about their, their mates and uh, does certainly get into, um, you know, what it was like to be under shell fire and what it was like to be in an attack. But you see, most of the soldiers in the First World War, you know, didn't constantly... I think there's an image that, that they were constantly in the trenches and they were constantly going over the top and they were constantly fighting, you know, the Germans and that was like four years of that. Yeah. And it wasn't the case, you know, they spent, you know, they spent three or four days in the front line each, every three to four weeks... Um, and when you think about it, they, that's what the government had to do. Otherwise, they would, have, they would have turned their entire army insane if they had just left them in the trenches the whole time. I mean, it was a very pragmatic thing. that they, It was, it was you know, forced upon the military authorities as that they had to just let, give these guys breaks all the time because, you know, your human brain couldn't be able to cope with what was going on on the front line. So, um, you know, it, it was four days on the front line and then you got rotated back into the support line, reserve line, and then ultimately you got a a week, you know, behind the lines, which was supposed to be a week of rest, but most of the time they made them carry carry stuff around supply. They do do fatigues, and they, they you know they didn't really allow them to rest too much. But but nonetheless, you were you know you weren't you were not in the front line. You were you know you were still just doing a job, um, lugging boxes. And, was there anything that really surprised you, either from the footage or from the voices of the veterans? Yeah, it was a lack of self pity, is what surprised me. I mean, we look on these guys with enormous sort of pity now. In a sense, you know, we think of that it was a war where we send a generation of young men into the industrial grinding mincing machine and destroyed their psyche and destroyed them for, for life. And, and to some degree, there's nothing untruthful about that, you know. That certainly is an overview of what happened. But they themselves didn't feel that. They didn't think that was what's happening to them. They, you know, listening to, you know, we listened to over 600 hours of veterans, from, you know, hundreds of different veterans, and they, there was no feeling sorry for themselves. 
There was no like, you know, you destroyed me, you know, you destroyed my entire life. And uh, I, I mean, in fact, it's the, the exact opposite. Most of them say it was the best thing that happened to me or it's, um, you know, I learned so much. I, I You know, I, it changed me, you know, it made me a man. It's, it's um, Most of them have, have a positive view of their experience in the war. I mean, there was this remarkable moment for me in the documentary when um, the war ends and a few of them say... I didn't know what to do with myself. I felt almost as if I'd been made redundant and felt, you know, completely lost. That yeah. really surprised me. And unfortunately, that turned out to be true when they went back home yeah. with, with with the unemployment and 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 there was a sort of and it sort of almost happens now, really. I think it happens in every war and every generation. Is the soldiers that come back are not treated as the heroes that they should be. You know, in a way, they they not they just you know when these guys because we have an image of the First World War again. One of our cliched views of veterans, I mean, they're all dead now, but, but when they weren't dead, they, you know, the whole idea was, well, these guys, old boys, never talk about the war, they, they never want to speak about it. And we assume they never spoke about it because it was so traumatic that they couldn't possibly even, even utter one word about this war, you know, that they experienced. But actually, what they describe after the coming home is they said, you know, you couldn't talk to civilians about the war, their eyes would glaze over, they didn't know what you'd experienced, how could you possibly even have a conversation with somebody who wasn't there? It was it was pointless, and they, you know, and one guy says that my father, who wasn't there, was an absolute expert in the war, and he would tell me, he, he would he would dis- disagree with things that I said, that I experienced, even though he wasn't even there. And, and you can you understand that once that happens, you just shut shut your mouth, and, and as I said, as I said, we didn't talk about it. We, you know, we took bits themselves. So you realise, well, they didn't actually talk about it because it was so traumatic they just didn't talk about it because what was the point no one would understand and and so they just get on with their lives um but also that you know there's one quote which i do think in, in a weird way actually sums up what the soldiers for the most part felt about the war as a guy that says um well it was what what we felt it was really just like one big extended boy scout camp with a little bit of danger thrown in just to spice it up. And that's kind of, you know, sort of, okay, well, that's probably, in actual fact, a very good quote of what an average soldier thought of this war, which is not what, what we feel they've they experienced. No, but, you, you sort know. of expect that they were almost forced into this horrific situation. Well, they weren't forced into it. They volunteered. Essentially, yeah. I mean, conscription came in in 1916, but the first, um, the soldiers of 1914 and 15 volunteered, and they, as one guy said, he said, we knew it was going to be tough, and it was tough. But we, you know, we didn't, we couldn't complain, and we didn't complain. It's, we just did, did what we were asked to do. They, they have a very pragmatic attitude, those those guys. And I wonder if I don't know whether people today still have it. But it, you know, it was that you, you know, you had to just get on with it. Complaining was not going to get you anywhere. And um, what, what was the point? And, and also, they were very funny. They were, there was a lot of humour. The film shows a lot of humour. The the audio has humour, and that's not unusual because when human beings are dealing with something incredibly stressful and incredibly you know, something that's almost overwhelming, you, you, you generally resort to humour. Yeah. The way you survive, the way you get through it. I wanted to ask you about the name, They Shall Not Grow Old. Mm. Um, how did you decide on this name? Well, the original poem is, a, is, is a shall, As They Shall Grow Not Old. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I agonised over that a little, you know, but I just thought, well, that doesn't sound very good for a film title. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> the accurate poem, but then we're not making a movie about the poem, we're making a movie about these guys. And I, I just thought, well, actually, the, the, the sentiment of, of, of that, with that little, little flip around of those words, they... They shall not grow old. Actually, actually reflects the film we're making, which they are old in the sense they're all dead now. They got old, old men, and they died. Um, the, the, the people that we're hearing, but the film is the purpose of the film is to say, okay, well, let's preserve them for all time as 
these guys that fought in this war. Let's, you know, they, they won't, they shall not grow grow any older. It should be, it should really be you, you know what I mean? I, I, and it's just felt appropriate, you know, so. Yeah, it's, I liked the double meaning of it, referring mm. to the guys that you see who mm. did sadly die in yeah. youth, but also the veterans that you're hearing mm. who may have lived long lives, but they're now preserved. And, and, the, and the other thing I should say, because I think, you know, I did think about it a lot when we were making this film, and I, and I think it's, it's worthy of talking about, it, is that we can, we can say about, you know, the attitude of these guys and the, the humour and the, and the fact that the extended Boy Scout camp and all that sort of stuff, but I don't think that would be the attitude of the guys that were killed. I mean, there's a whole set of voices that we're not getting in this film, which is the guys that um, were terribly wounded and died and pain and painful deaths and horrific deaths, and, and I don't think they would have actually felt quite that same way. Of course, yeah. But unfortunately, we don't have their voices, you know, so we, they, they can't tell their, tell their story in that way anymore. So this is very much the story of the survivors of the war and how they viewed it, really. We're, well, obviously, we're approaching the centenary of the end of the First World War, and the people who experienced the war directly are no longer with us. Mm. Do you think we're in danger of forgetting the conflict, um, particularly in terms of human experience, the further we get away from it? Well, that's the thing with history, isn't it, is that history is a constantly growing thing. What, what, what you and I are doing today is going to be history, history tomorrow. Now, the history grows and grows and grows, and eventually, you know, things become so, you know, there's so much other history that's important to think of that the stuff that's further back becomes less important. So, you know, that's just, I mean, we don't, how much do we think about an average soldier who, who fought in mm. the Battle of Hastings in 10, 1066? We don't really think much, of, much about it. I do him. quite a lot in my day-to-day -day job. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But, but you don't really think about the people. You think, don't yeah. think about the No, you think of like, data. You, you don't think about old Stan who was in the front, the front row of the pikesmen or something, you know, you don't, you know. But So you do, ultimately, time does actually march on and, and you know, I think it's inevitable that with time goes on that, that the particular intensity of the of, of history sort of dilutes itself a wee bit. Mm -hmm. It's still become, it's still history, but it dilutes. So I think, but I still think that the First World War is, I mean, I wouldn't argue with you particularly that's relevant today in, in per se, but I I would say that the um, that it's not that far away that, that most people in the UK and the and the old empire, Britain, and oh, sorry, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, South Africa. Most of us have, uh, we're only a, a great grandfather away mm -hmm. from someone who fought in that war. And so I think to answer your question, I think it actually depends on how you view your forebears. You know, you know, some people have no interest whatsoever in what their grandfather did or a great grandfather couldn't, couldn't, couldn't care less. And I don't think you're ever going to change their minds necessarily. They just live for today. And, for tomorrow, but I think sometimes, especially as you get older, I found that when I got to be in my 40s, you know, I, I just felt, even though I've always been interested in the First World War, I just felt a sudden surge of interest in my in my ancestors, not just the First World War, but I did lots of research. Where did my great-grandma come from and what in, in her mother used? Suddenly as you get older, you get, you get more interested in it, you know, so so it's hard to, it's certainly hard to get young people interested in their, in the old members of their family or the, you know, it's very hard because they are, because they're young, they are living for today and they've got their whole lives in front of them and they've got other things to think about. But you get to a certain age and you do suddenly, you know, and when you face your own, your own end, I suppose, and your mortality, you start to think, well, where, 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 where am I in the great progression of our family and what happened earlier? So, it's, um, but certainly, you know, the, the First World War is not that far away that we, it's, it's a pretty immediate, most families will probably have photos of 
members, you know, the family, great uncles, grandfathers in uniform in the First World War. You probably go into your into the cupboard or your shelf and dig out a, an old family photo album and you'll see them. So, you know, that's that's not it's they're still there. They're still part of your family. Well you dedicated the film to your grandfather. Mm. What can you tell us about him? Well I only well I've been I mean he died in nineteen forty, so I never met him. Um Fortunately, I would have loved to have done, but you know, yeah. especially as time has gone on, I, and I've got, you know, I certainly would have. But I, but I sort of, I, I, I kind of liked doing this movie because it, I felt because it was a common. I tried to make it a common experience of a soldier. You know, I didn't really do stories that I thought were individual. Only this guy experienced this particular thing. I, I sort of tried to tell the story that everyone was talking about. So it was a sort of a very collective. So I did actually feel all the way through the making of the film that. That I was, you know, I was sort of feeling a lot of what my grandfather would have, you know, I was learning a lot about what my grandfather would have lived through. Like, you know, the guys that talk about their lunch and their breakfast and their meals and what they ate. Well, I'm, my grandfather probably ate the same stuff because the British Army was pretty consistent. It didn't have a lot of variety. So, I, you know, you know, so I was really when I was listening to guys talking about their, that stuff, I, I was really, I was, under, I was learning and understanding what 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 my grandfather ate. So I appreciated it. I mean, I like that. I, I, I did even though he's not in the film and he's and there's no recordings of him or anything else. I, you know, I, I did feel quite, quite, I did feel like I was understanding a lot more about his experience in the war. And you do, you particularly have an interest in the First World War. I think yeah. you have seven oh, yeah. planes, do you? I've got, I've got 50 or 60 planes, yeah. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. What, what's your interest in the First World War as a, as a topic in, in particular? Well, I, I, grew, I grew up with my dad telling me stories about his father, my grandfather, you know, in South Wales borders. And, and um, my dad used to buy, you know, in the 60s when I grew up, there wasn't these great industry of First World War books that there is today. You know, like there seems to be books every day coming out about yeah. different topics. But in the 60s, there was not a lot was being written about the First World War. And um, but every now and again, a book would come out and my dad would go and buy it. And so the bookshelf at home when I was a kid was sort of slowly growing up with books. And I was and I was an only child, so, you know, I'd certainly had time to, you know, I would, uh, we didn't have a big bookshelf either. <laughs> we were in a very small house with not much... And um, and so I, I just would pull books off the bookshelf and look, read First World War books, and my dad would tell me stories that he knew from his father, and and it was just something I grew up with, and, and growing up with it, I haven't lost my interest in it really. It's um, and and ironically, my interest sort of veered into different directions away from my grandfather. I became interested in the aviation in the air war, which which he wasn't part of. And, I mean, no no part of my family. I don't I don't think any of my family were in were in the Royal Flying Corps, but I. I sort of became interested in the air war and started um, collecting aircraft. And, well, I started building models first, um, airfix models, long before I started, yeah, was able to build, build planes. But now I, when I was able to build planes, I started building them and I haven't stopped building them. Um, and then I started to become interested in the Gallipoli Anzac story because, you know, I was in New Zealand and even though my grandfather was in the British Army, um, you know, when I was young, I didn't quite understand it all. And, and Gallipoli was a thing in New Zealand and my grandfather fought there. And I couldn't kind of figure out how and why New Zealand, we used to go out and march on Anzac Day on the 25th of April for the Gallipoli landings. And my, and my granddad was there, but he was in the British Army. And it took me a long time when I was, you know, when I was seven or eight years old to figure it all out. You know, that, that so, so, so in a way, the, um, you know, the Anzac story of Gallipoli, you know, has become something I'm really interested in, you know, and my grandfather was actually there, but I've sort of been interested in the Anzac part of that because of, of the country that I'm in. Um, and ironically, I'll tell you one, one story that I haven't really told many times. One thing that was quite remarkable is that, um, you see, my dad immigrated to New Zealand at the end of World War II. He was a British soldier in World War II, and like a lot of people, they, well, they, they, they left Britain to go find a new life after the war. My mum did the same as well, and they both of them met 
in New Zealand. They didn't know each other here. They were, they were both English. And, they, and, and one time I remember asking my dad, I said, well, why, why when, you, when you left England at the end of World War II, why did you come here to, to, to our New Zealand? I mean, you could have chosen Canada. You could have chosen Australia, South Africa. Lots of, lots of British servicemen went, went all over the world, you know, when they went to find a new life. And because you came to New Zealand and you met my mum and, you know, ended up with me. And he said to me, that he told me that he went, he went, he came to, he chose New Zealanders, and which he'd never been to in his life before. Um, he came to New Zealand at the end of the Second World War because his, his father had admired the way the New Zealand soldiers fought in the First World War, that the 2nd Battalion South Wales Borderers had fought alongside the Kiwis on several occasions. Wow. They, and they had it at Gallipoli, they did it at Passchendaele. And they did it at uh, Lakanoir at the end of the war. And um, so they had fought side by side with the Kiwis several times. And he said that his father used to always tell him how great the, how great the Kiwi troops were. And he would describe the New Zealanders that he met. And, and he really admired them, like my grandfather, really admired the Kiwis. So when Dad had to immigrate, he chose, he chose a country that his, that, his grand, that his father had spoken a lot, lot about. And, 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 you know, he came over to New Zealand. He met, met my mum and me. So if... if in a funny way, I am a child of the First World War, that if my grandfather hadn't admired the Kiwi troops, if he admired the Canadians more or the Australians more, then that's, that's where Dad would have gone and he, no wouldn't, and he wouldn't have met my, met my mum. So, you know, it's, I, it's a kind of a strange, weird little thing. That was Peter Jackson. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. After speaking with Peter, Rachel caught up with Jenny Waldman, Director of 14 to 18 Now, and Diane Lees, Director General of the Imperial War Museum, both of whom were also involved in the film project. So I want to start with asking you both about Peter Jackson's new film, They Shall Not Grow Old. Um, 
So what do you think this film adds to our understanding of the war? Well, I think that what Peter Jackson has done is he's brought his incredible storytelling ability and also his film digital technology understanding to an, an amazing story and an incredible archive. So the combination of the two means that the archive has will be opened up, I think, to a new generation, a generation that perhaps isn't so used to watching black and white movies anymore, isn't so used to sitting and watching scratchy black and white movies that have fantastic stuff in them but actually need a little bit more effort to to see. Um, and what he's done is he's given the war uh, humanity. He's, he's telling the war story from the men's point of view, and I think that that hasn't been done before. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think one of the really uh, the jobs of the museum is to make its collections as accessible as as possible, and the partnership in the film with 1480 Now has uh, and the museum and Peter has been about bringing a contemporary audience that perhaps aren't traditional museum visitors both to the museum in terms of the subject, but also to the to achieving a greater level of knowledge in the general population about the history of the First World War and how important it is to understand the First World War in order to understand what's happening in the world today. So we see it as a, a kind of culmination of the work that we've been doing um, as, a, as a, a kind of group of organisations. I mean, perhaps you can tell me a bit about the, the footage that was used. It's been in this archive for, for a while. Who are the people who recorded the footage is kind of what I want to know. Well, it, it's really interesting because um, the the footage is largely, um, if, you, if you look at the beginning of the war in 1914, it was really a traditional reporting. So you got a journalist who wrote a, a column, you know, and then they employed artists to represent the battle scene. So that's how they were taking the war news home. And then, um, you know, with the, with the ingenuity of the French and inventing much more portable cameras, it, there started to be an idea that you could record the, the kind of, you know, the battlefield on film. And so what we see is the beginning of the documentary. What we see, you know, with the Battle of the Somme film in 1916, we see a whole piece of propaganda. It was largely for the home front audience. It was about how gloriously we were building up to, uh, at the point of time, win the Battle of the Somme, which we know wasn't the case in hindsight. But what film and that technology did was it introduced, um, uh, you know, sort of bringing the, the battlefield into the cinemas. And it actually made cinema going for the first time actually acceptable to the middle classes because they were going to see if they could see their relatives in the film. One of the things that I was struck because I watched the film this morning um, was obviously some of this film was produced for propaganda type purposes, but there's actually some quite graphic images in the film of, of death and were these the kind of things that they were bringing home to audiences at the time? Because I can't imagine that they were. There's a definite there's a definite difference. So um, if you look at the Battle of the Somme, which was supposedly about you know as as winning the war, um, mm. uh, it's very much there's there's a very light touch. And of course, prior to using film as a, a as a method, um, actually you only showed the dead of your enemy. You didn't show your own dead. So once filming came in and it, they were mixed bodies, so they were Brit British and German, etc. it started to change the nature of the way in which information was shown at home. And, and in fact, I think there was a recognition that, that actually telling the public, I mean, they knew people weren't coming home and they'd seen people coming home injured. So to then cleanse 
the reporting that was coming back from the front would not have been good propaganda. So you start to see, if you look at the, even the differences over six months of the battles of the Somme, you start to see a different kind of journalistic quality. You, you start to see a little bit more kind of, you know, reality and some beautiful cinematic qualities coming into the films that come back as part of uh, as part of the narrative. But it's very, it was a very different purpose. There's a different purpose between the propaganda leading up to people supporting the war and actually reporting the war. And that's, I think, 1916 was probably the tipping point when those two methods kind of started to diverge into the kind of war reporting that we would expect to see today. And we do see that in the film. We see a shift from some of these propaganda-type images into absolutely. the more sort of graphic, the, tr- the true horror. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you both sort of mentioned that you want to target young people as part of the film's release. Um, do you think we do enough in schools to remember the First World War? We start with... Well, I think the First World War is still taught in schools. Um, kids learn the history and also the poetry of it. Much the same, I think, as I did when I was uh, at school. And I think that one of the things that I've learned through um, working with at 1418 now and with the IWM and on the centenary generally is that through our artist commissions at 1418 now, we've invited artists to look at a number of different perspectives, particularly, for instance, a global perspective on the First World War. And it has been quite remarkable to me that many of those narratives are not taught in school. So we don't learn about the war in Africa. We don't learn about the million people in Africa killed during the First World War. We don't learn so much about the contribution of the Indian subcontinent and of the Chinese Labour Corps and so on. So our the, the surprise, I think, for me is that our education is still mainly focused on the Western Front. And Peter's film is indeed entirely focused on the Western Front because that's where the film was made and he's worked with entirely with archive resource. So he he has been constrained by archive resource, but in every other way he's broken free of all of those uh, of all of those boundaries. And I think that the film will help uh, schools as a resource simply because it br- it genuinely brings the whole thing alive. It absolutely feels as if you're there in the trenches with the men. To be able to see their faces, to be able to hear in the background what they're saying to each other, the splashes of the tanks, all of those things just kind of make you really sit up and listen and watch it and take it all in and feel as if you're beginning to understand what life might have been like then. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're approaching the centenary of the end of the First World War um, and over the past four years you've both spearheaded this huge drive to commemorate the war. Um, so what were your aims back in 2014 when you set out on this huge uh, undertaking? <laughs> well, I remember sitting with Di and various other members of our 1418 Now board just before we launched um, our first season. And uh, one of you, I don't know, Di, whether it was you or one of the other board members said, one of the questions you're going to be asked is how many people you are going to reach with your 1418 Now program of arts commissions. So we had a little think and thought, OK, let's be hugely ambitious about 
about this. We've got five years. We're going to reach 10 million people. And uh, we've so far reached 35 million people. Wow. So one of the things that has really come through to me is quite how fascinated people are in this country about the First World <laughs> War. And also, you know, how many different stories there are to tell. Each of our artists has found different ways into it, different sources of inspiration. Many of them have had the great privilege of being able to come to the IWM, talk to historians, delve into the archives, find new things uh, to talk about. And audiences are really, really interested. Mm -hmm. What are some of the most remarkable things that have cropped up from the past four years for you both? Oh, there's so many. There are so many because actually one of our ambitions, of course, was to make sure that people understood their own history, so their own family history. And some of the stories that the families tell of, you know, sort of they, they, they never asked their grandparents anything about the war or grandpa never talked about the war. And they have found the most extraordinary things. And some of them really tragic, like people who were shot at dawn, um, people who came back from the war and uh, you never would have known they'd served and people who had a very different history. So I think one of the... One of, one of the um, great things about this project is that it's brought people, A, that aren't traditional museum visitors in, but it's also then given them a reason to connect and that reason is now personal. So one of the extraordinary things about the poppies the, uh, at the tower was, was that, that actually now we see people um, where the poppies have been and taught, bringing their poppies like a pilgrimage. And that's a really important emotional connection. And we think the long-lasting legacy of the First World War centenary is because we've reconnected so many families with their own history, as, as well as the big narrative and the big stats and the big figures that we would always do. Well, I was going to ask, actually, because there's a danger the further you get away from the conflict, it be can become a bit impersonal. Yeah. So, and as you just yeah. said, this is now the legacy going forward. Absolutely. So Lives of the First World War, which is one of our digital projects, now has the recorded lives of 7.5 million people wow. that served in the First World War, even on the home, uh, from the home front. But the conscientious objectors, everybody, and, and the public are crowdsourcing. And we have a whole series of community groups that have been doing their, their village history, etc., so we think this is not something that will just disappear back. It might over time, but, you know, I, we think that post the First World War centenary, there are still lots of people who are still doing their family history and still having those conversations. And that intergenerational messaging is what creates the, the kind of museum visitors of the future. It's interesting you say that, Di, because we, we just launched um, our final project with Danny Boyle for the Armistice uh, last week. And... Danny was asked uh, this very question about whether his project on beaches where we're saying thank you and farewell is uh, marking the end of remembrance, really, of the First World War as well as the, uh, the end of the First World War centenary. And his answer was fascinating. He said when he started the project, when we invited him to think of something to do for the armistice 100 years later, he thought that it would be the final farewell. He thought that after 100 years, when the First World War was just tipping over the edge of the kind of human link to your grandfather or your grandmother, that actually it was time to stop and time to say that final farewell. And then he said, but I've changed my mind. And now that I've made an emotional connection, I realize that that would be quite wrong and that actually I think we should continue. And, and that's the other thing about uh, uh, Peter and, and the film is that his personal family connection to the First World War is, is kind of, you know, resonates by, by the sensitive way in which he treats the material. He has a personal connection 
to the First World War. He has a passion for the First World War history. And the way he treats that human narrative really comes through in the film that he really cares mm -hmm. about the experience and the subjects. It's not just another project and it's quite techy. And it's, it, it has that human heartbeat all the way through it. And that's really strong. It is quite an interesting one because obviously we know all the, the big statistics. We can look at the war through these big statistics and from step back almost. And often, and often that is how we look at the war as, you know, historians look at the war. Yeah. Um, but Peter's film, like, I was struck this morning by just, it is completely a personal, it, it's so personal. It's the yeah. voices of people who were there and the images yeah. of people who were there. Yeah. There's no one in it that's sitting back and analysing it. It's just this raw... And I, I think that he does exactly what the artists of the First World War did. So the men who served, who then created the poetry and the paintings that have influenced our perceptions of the First World War so strongly over the last hundred years, were right there. And they gave their emotional, personal, human response to the the actuality of the First World War. And I think that's exactly what Peter does all over again. Mm -hmm. And he brings extraordinary technology and, uh, uh, and you know, uh, the, the sort of techie side of things to it. But the fundamental thing is that he is it's really passion. engaging yeah. us again mm -hmm. with it. Yeah, yeah, real passion for the subject. Yeah. Yeah. I think one final question. Um, We've touched on it already, and I know what your answer is going to be. But has this, has the past four years of centenary commemorations been a success, and do we do we have a lasting legacy? Well, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we think so. I mean, it's been a success partly uh, in terms of the kind of public interest and engagement, which I think has been seen across the board, uh, whether it's at the museum or other museums or other heritage centres, in the arts commissions, in television documentaries, book sales, everything about the First World War has had no let up in public interest. Um, but also, I think one of the things that we've been able to do is uh, reconnect emotionally through the arts commissions with uh, those stories and narratives of the First World War that give a personal connection and I think that that will be part of the legacy. The artworks themselves, Peter's film, which is going to every secondary school in the country, uh, is going to be a legacy itself. It will be at the Imperial War Museum forevermore um, as will the two poppies uh, sculptures, Wave and Weeping Window, will be part of the Imperial War Museum's collections. So all of those things are, uh, indeed, the 1418 Now archive is going to be uh, rest within the, four, within the IWM for you. To, but the, uh, all of these things for the centenary will be part of the story of the First World War. And I think in 50 or 100 years' time, people will look back just not, not just at the First World War, but also what happened 50 years later and what happened 100 years later and how we brought our modern sensibilities, our contemporary sensibilities to that centenary and it will be very different in another hundred years time. It will. It will. And, and I think the, the other thing to say is that I think um, we, we, the expectation was relatively low but actually you know the, the facts that people know now so 
there were people when we originally surveyed in 2013 that didn't know that the First World War was 1914 to 18. They didn't know that there was rationing in the First World War. They thought that was the Second World War. There was a lot of confusion between the Second World War narrative and the First World War narrative. And we've been surveying people right the way through the process. So the level of public understanding of the big narrative, as well as those personal experiences, we could we can prove as has actually been a success. So there's lots of evaluation coming up. We're, we'll all, we're, you know, we'll make sure that the leg, part of the legacy is showing the impacts that it's had on, on, on both individuals and organisations and community groups. So mm -hmm. the First World War Centenary Partnership, which is is, is, is led by IWM, has had six, uh, four, over 4,000 partners in 62 countries during the four years. So it's a global impact as well as a, as a, as, as a, as a local impact. And that's exactly what we set out to do. And one, I know I said that was my final question, <laughs> but one final, final question. Um, what, can you describe to me a story that you've come across in the, this past four years that's really moved you from the war? Well, one of the stories that I didn't know of the First World War that I find astonishing is of the dazzle ships, oh. is of the artists who were um, commissioned within the First World War set up within the Royal Navy to find solutions to a problem, which is that Navy and Merchant Navy ships were being torpedoed and created a whole system of dazzle design of ships that has actually influenced modern art for you know many decades and actually influences fashion now if you look at you know most fashion seasons will there'll be quite a lot of dazzle uh, <laughs> within you know one top shop or henny's or somewhere and that all came from the first world war and wow. the dazzle ships of the first world war which uh, were thousands of them were painted uh, in the UK and then um, Norman Wilkinson the artist who had invented dazzle went over to the United States and dazzled 1250 ships so in America, literally huge ships. And like a geometric Okay, let's find some pictures. So instead of uh, what you would imagine as typical camouflage, they are a very kind of modernist uh, set of geometric patterns. And the whole idea is that if you popped up with your, tele your uh, telescope from your submarine and you were tracking a ship, that the disruptive pattern would, uh, not, so that they would, the submarines wouldn't be able to judge the speed or the direction of the ship. Wow. So that was the whole idea behind them. Unfortunately, I hate to say this to Jenny, is that it was never proven that it was successful. Oh. Because we also invented the convoy system, which is so synonymous with the Second World War, where we put destroyers around merchant ships in order to protect them from the submarines. But it was a fabulous idea. And, and in fact, you know, if you look at the way in which uh, you know, cam new camouflage is, has been designed for disruptive patterning, it's very dazzle-oriented. Dazzle so it's an incredible story. That's incredible. I've never heard of that before. I'm going to have to track down <laughs> some images to accompany the, the piece that we'll do on this. And, and probably my favourite story is a, is, is a personal one, actually. Well, not personal to me, but personal to the museum, which is the story of Lottie Mead. And, and Lottie was uh, a mum of three, and she worked in the shell filling factories, the national shell filling factories, and she became what they called a canary girl. So her skin became tainted by the yellow sulphur 
And so she, be, but unfortunately she died of, of poisoning. And when, her, uh, when the museum was created in 1917, there was an appeal in the ration book for material. And her husband sent the only two photographs that he had of Lottie and asked for the museum to select one and send the other one back because he wanted her to be seen alongside her comrades forevermore. And so became part of our, the first photographic collection that, that, that was the founding collection of the museum. So Lottie to me kind of evokes that home front service, that complete sacrifice, and but also the pride in the family that she became part of the national story at that point. And that to me kind of confirms the purpose of the museum going forward, which is to keep those personal stories alive. Well, thank you both for your time today. It was really nice speaking to you. Um, where should I send our readers if they want to learn more about what you do? <laughs> there are two websites. <laughs> two websites. <laughs> One is 1418now.org.uk. Uh, the IWM is iwm.org.uk. And if you're interested in community events and partnerships, then it's 1914.org. So there's two there. And of course, the museum has five branches and they're always open. That was Jenny Waldman and Diane Lees. And as I mentioned at the start, They Shall Not Grow Old is due to be released in UK cinemas tomorrow, the 16th of October, and will air on BBC One around the Armistice Centenary. And that is about all for today, but we will be back on Thursday to discuss Churchill with Andrew Roberts. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.